welcome all to episode two of the Benefits Breakdown. This is Vanessa Longnecker, and I'm here with my teammate, Jared. Say hello, Jared. Hey, everybody. How y'all doing out there? Excited to be here with all of you today as we talk about all things Rx. It's certainly a dynamic space that we all live and lead today. We certainly have many great partners and internal experts at Hayes on this very topic, but excited to have a special guest with us today to talk to you, um, one among many you'll hear from as we proceed in our series ahead. Excited to have Nathan White from Rx Benefits with us today and give you a quick background on Nathan. Nathan has 18 years plus experience in the pharmacy space. He has been with CVS and OptumRx for a long period of time and most recently is with an organization, Rx Benefits. Nathan, welcome. We're very glad to have you with us today. No, I appreciated the invite. Thank you very much for, for having me and look forward to the conversation. For sure. Nathan, do you want to give us just a quick background to what you're doing at Rx Benefits, and then a little bit of intro to Rx Benefits and where you fit in this space. Absolutely. Um, so again, my name's Nathan White. I'm the chief client officer with Rx Benefits. Uh, we're a Birmingham-based company, and we're, we're the industry's first pharmacy benefit optimizer. Um, so really, we're here to serve uh, the pharmacy benefit needs for middle market employers and for brokers um, out in the community. So really, highly focused on, on helping employers save dollars on their pharmacy spend and create a better experience for their members and for obviously leadership amongst those middle market employers as well. So that's, we're heavily focused in that space. Awesome. Do you work with all pharmacy benefit managers or do you guys have a specific market that you're working with? It, it's a good question. So um, I, I guess the best way to classify it is we, we've looked at, you know, partnering with a broad range of pharmacy benefit managers um, today we're highly aligned, uh, and work in partnership with the big three. So they're dubbed. Uh, so the big three being CVS, Caremark, OptumRx, and Express Scripts. And, you know, reason being is that because we ultimately manage the client member relationship via our own assets. Um, we manage the clinical experience via our own assets, really where that partnership you know, as highly aligned as on the network and on the rebates and on the economic components of the pharmacy arena. Um, and because this is still a scale-driven business, you know, being aligned with those three organizations that drive between 80 and 85% of all pharmacy spent in the United States, you know, makes a ton of sense for our model today. But we're still very open to talking to other pharmacy benefit managers. But at this point, you know, the big three have really supported us and, and supported this partnership for, for a good number of years. Awesome. Thank you very much, Nathan, for the introduction. Awesome. No, Nathan, obviously we work uh, on the, in the broker space with many, many great partners, right? You talk about your model. It sits amongst many, many, many models that we peek under the hood at and uh, consult with our clients around. But the main objective, of course, being how do we control both the bottom line and the outcomes for our employer group health plans and their members alike. This said, can you talk to us a little bit about how your RX benefits, pharmacy benefits optimizer could impact a self-funded employer? Yeah, very good question. So I think it, it starts with just ensuring alignment with their unique needs. Um, each, each employer that's out there has very unique needs, whether it comes to, as, as it relates to the benefits that they're offering, 
essentially the service and, and at the end of the day, the clinical components that are that are used to, to help maintain the trend on the pharmacy benefit side. And at Rx Benefits, we view there being a big void in the pharmacy benefit market um, that exists today. And it's really kind of tied to those three components. One, you know, if you're a, a thousand life or a thousand employee employer and you tried to go direct to one of those big three, you know, you may get a contract. It, it may not be a very competitive financial contract. Uh, it may be full of optics that are not aligned with your unique business needs. Pricing would be highly problematic. And we've solved for that by having more of an aggregated approach to, to getting really competitive contract terms. So that's really, you know, one way that we're bridging that gap. Second is the service experience. So even if you were to ultimately, you know, have a direct to PBM relationship, you know, we see them in some instances getting the B team or the D team uh, because some of those those really good assets within the PBMs are highly focused on large employers, uh, large managed care relationships, and not always there to serve the needs of the middle market. And we bridge that gap uh, as well with a regional approach to managing those client relationships. And the third, and I view this as almost being the most important, is being highly aligned clinically um, with the employer's needs. I'm sure we're going to talk a good bit today about specialty medications and the rising cost of pharmaceuticals. Having a business partner that's highly aligned with you know, those organizations to ensure that the appropriate clinical decisions are being made um, and that there's not wasteful utilization getting through the system and costing excess money for those middle market employers. So that, that's really where we've bridged that gap is taking over that clinical interface as it relates to the prior authorizations and over, you know, oversight over the formulary to drive additional savings for those employers. Nathan, you talked about the contract component, and really that is where I think a lot of the confusion in the pharmacy space comes from. Tell us what some of the key components employers should be aware of when they're looking at a contract. Some of the, I mean, there's several terms out there that people hear and they probably don't even know what they, not everyone out there knows what they mean, like AWP. What does that mean? ingredient costs, dispensing fees, all these things that make up a pharmacy benefit contract. From the employer side, that's where a lot of the shell game can take place and why it really takes some uncovering as a consultant and partners like yourself to help employers get that maximized or to get the best contract possible. Yeah, it's a good question. I think just having a baseline knowledge of some of those terms that are utilized in the contracting process is extremely important. I, I wish there was and someday I'll be a multimillionaire from publishing a, a PBM for dummies. <laughs> um, but I will say there are some basic terminology that, that I can share with you. So you mentioned AWP, you know, that's the basis for how all discounts are ultimately quantified within a contract. But AWP, you know, essentially is the average wholesale price. Uh, it's a measurement of the drug price paid by pharmacies uh, for, you know, certain products. And, you know, it, it's it's today published from a couple of different sources. So Medispan, First Data Bank, many of you may have heard of those two firms, but ultimately they publish AWP data and ultimately publish that common source of price, you know, out in the market that almost all PBM contracts are based off of. You mentioned ingredient cost, and there's a difference between AWP and ingredient cost. So ingredient cost means the actual amount paid to a pharmacy provider by a carrier or the carrier's pharmacy benefit manager for a prescription drug. A little different than AWP. AWP is the basis for how the price is measured. 
ingredient costs is actually what they're being paid. Dispensing fee was another term that you had mentioned. Uh, that ultimately compensates the pharmacy for dispensing the medication to a patient. Um, covers their overhead. It covers the pharmacy's ability to keep the lights on, uh, as well as such as stocking, storing medication, patient counseling that they might do at point of sale. Um, the last one, which is probably, and I'll mention a couple more, you know, and I'm interested to hear if there's any others that you'd like for me to expand on, but UNC is another term that's commonly used um, in the PBM world that's usual and customary price. So essentially that would be the price that a prescription drug would cost if somebody were to walk into the pharmacy uh, without any coverage. So almost the retail price for a medication. So when it comes to contracting, making sure that all of these sources of information um, you know, align with the, co the contract needs is really important. So you always wanna have the lesser of logic built into the contract, which takes either the lowest price discounted rate or the usual and customary at point of sale, um, because you certainly don't want somebody that has an insured offering, you know, getting, you know, or not having access to that retail price if it's potentially cheaper than the discounted rate that they could access through their employer. Hopefully those helped. Um, are there any other terms that you'd like for me to expand on? No, I think we could talk about RX and PBM terms for days, but I think that's a nice <laughs> high level. I mean, ultimately, to take a quick step back, I mean, the reality is there's not a single group health plan out there today that's exempt from the impact of a rapidly growing specialty RX or RX trend as a whole. We have an aging population. We have very dynamic and amazing new treatments. They're coming at an excessive and additional cost to most group health plans, if not their members alike. What do you see as the biggest upcoming impact to the pharmacy industry, knowing that that is already the baseline in the world that we all live? So the impact to the industry as it relates to these complex or, or ways to mitigate it? Both. Yeah, so I, I think... You know, I, I think that the, the key to it is, is understanding that these medications are out there, right? And at least, you know, assuming and having to make some assumption that at some point as a self-funded employer, as an employer, one of these high cost medications will impact your plan. Right now we see on average one in 10,000 members, not necessarily employees, but members, you know, have a high cost claimant that's going to hit $250,000 in annualized pharmacy spend each year. So there's only so long that you can isolate yourself from one of these high cost medications. So, you know, first and foremost is recognizing that they're out there, having visibility into the pipeline and understanding the costs associated with these therapies is extremely important. I think the second component is making sure that you're, you have a pharmacy provider or pharmacy benefit manager or a pharmacy benefit optimizer like RX Benefits, you know, evaluating, you know, these particular therapies and ensuring that it's the appropriate therapy for the patient that's on the population. So, you know, the last thing you'd want to hear is that, you know, a patient was pre prescribed something and they ultimately were able to receive or access that medication, but there were potentially 10 other alternative therapies that were much cheaper um, so to me, that, that's a misaligned relationship um, that I think is extremely important to managing risk, you know, moving forward. So I hope that makes sense. It's, it's the misalignment that's the biggest concern that I have as it relates to these particular drug therapies. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, each employer has to, you know, obviously address the risk associated with it. So we're already starting to see some employers carve out specialty altogether, and, and that has 
obviously downstream ramifications on being able to recruit, maintain talent um, as an employer, but it, it's, I call it the tsunami, uh, you know, of, of high cost medications. It's just a matter of making sure you're equipped to, to manage them appropriately is, is where I, I'm highly focused. So one of the trends that we see, Nathan, and we've talked about this term already, it's come up in our conversation, is that of specialty medications. Maybe we should start with a baseline of there of what is a specialty medication? How do you define specialty medications and why are they classified all by themselves? Yeah, it's so it's a really good question. You know, specialty medications, there's there's probably 20 different definitions out there in the world around what an actual specialty <laughs> medication is. And you know, for each PBM, it's actually very different, right? So I, I would say just a specialty medication in most instances are these high cost, um, most of the time self-administered medications, um, you know, that are out there. I, I think the terminology I've used historically is that any medication that's over $1,000 uh, to treat a complex condition could almost be classified as a specialty medication, but we're already starting to see some variability on the definitions of a specialty medication out in the market. So a few years ago, you know, everybody would assume that, you know, a special or HIV medications would be classified as being specialty meds. Now, not so much. They're more commonplace, almost considered, you know, to be a common branded medication out there. So it's tough to define exactly what a specialty medication is, but it generally is used to treat you know, very complex condition. They're generally self-administered. You know, some are obviously injectable outside of diabetic products and then other, you know, oral taken medications to treat complex conditions is how I would define a specialty med. The, the real difficulty of specialty medications, as you talked about, is the cost. But personally speaking, from personal experience, I take a specialty medication. So I know just how life-changing they can be for the people that are taking them. So it's it becomes that double-edged sword for the employer of we want to offer this level of care to our employees because we want to help them treat these conditions that they are managing. And we want them to have access to the care to be able to change their life. Truly, Humira has changed my life. I can say that it's made my Crohn's disease manageable. It becomes a double-edged sword. How do you mitigate against that cost that's coming in? What are employers or what are you seeing people out in the, the market do to help mitigate that cost, especially medications? Because we see the specialty drugs has the highest trend of anything else in the medic, the medical or pharmacy space, the trend that we're that we're seeing right now is about eleven and a half percent or greater, depending on who you ask. So, how do you mitigate that cost? Yeah, it, so there's there's two really good thoughts there. So, one, I I agree a hundred percent with what you're saying. Um, you know, specialty medications, you know, generally change the lives of most individuals that that utilize them, and it is also a means to ensure that patients. Um, or staying out of the the inpatient setting, right? Which is obviously very costly. And some of it also helps with quality of life. Some of it helps with productivity as well. So there, there's a lot of really good that comes from, you know, having access to specialty medications. Um, to answer your question specifically, you know, one, it, I kind of go back to my original thought here is you have to have somebody that's helping you manage your utilization um, that's highly aligned with the interests of the employer and patient, right? So, you know, as a perfect example, you'd never want, you know, a patient accessing a high cost specialty medication when they're using it off indication, right? Or if they're using a diabetic product, you know, to help them with their weight loss, 
So, you know, what I would say is you have to have a, a partner on the pharmacy benefit side that's highly aligned with your interests to ensure that they're not, you don't have wasteful spend in, in, in the plan. And then obviously ensuring that it's the right dose, the right therapy for that particular individual, right? So it, it, that's sometimes half the battle is that you can see a medication where, you know, they're accessing, you know, maybe a 40 you know, milligram pill of something when it's less expensive to take, you know, two 20 milligram pills as an example. So parity pricing and looking at the cost of medication through a blind eye versus just letting them pass through the system untouched. So, you know, keeping the patient mindful in that process is extremely important, right? So having a good mechanism and a good, you know, atmosphere for those individuals to ask those questions as it relates to their condition is extremely important as well. So I hope that helps, but it's it's a multifaceted approach to managing these really complex conditions and these medications. But, you know, it, it really comes with there's a lot of waste in the system as well today. And if, if you're going to spend the money or make that investment as an employer, at least you want to have the peace of mind that the person on the other end of that prior authorization has, you know, the patient and the employer's best interest in mind versus their own financial gain. Thanks for that, Nathan. I mean, the reality is specialty drugs as a whole make up 40% of new product launches in today's marketplace. So while be it employer groups and plan sponsors are already feeling that pressure, it is likely to continue, right, as we look to the future. The good news on that front is that we're beginning to see what are called biosimilars in the marketplace, which is very comparable to a traditional retail benefit when we talk about brand and generics. Can you tell us a little bit more about biosimilars? Yeah. Um, so biosimilars are, are products that are, I guess, the best way to say it. And, and I always think of them as, as almost the generics of the specialty market, even though that's not the right terminology <laughs> and the way to think about them. But in a simplistic world, that's the way I think of them. They use very similar active ingredients to get a similar result to their branded counterparts. And in a lot of instances, you know, the industry anticipated that they were going to create more cost-effective way to manage some of these therapies or these conditions. And that hasn't necessarily, you know, rang true yet, which is unfortunate. Um, you know, we haven't really touched on it here today, but in a lot of instances, these biosimilars are not rebatable. Uh, so they're not branded medications that are generating, you know, a price concession from pharma. And in a lot of instances, you know, that rebate could, could account for close to 25 to 30 percent of the actual spend for those medications. So there would have to be massive savings for that biosimilar to offset, you know, the rebate value that, that a branded medication could garner. For sure, which rages a very, very good uh, and nice segue into the next topic we're hoping to cover off on, and that is, in fact, rebates as a whole. Many, certainly average consumers, let alone employer or plan sponsors, are truly unaware of the degree of rebate activity that happens behind the scenes and how they can properly leverage that in the best interest of the plan and or the participant. What is the role of rebates in the pharmacy world? And, you know, we obviously see many different levels of rebates. Can you help us understand how and why there are so many different levels of rebates and some of the rules and applying those that you're seeing to the patients at a point of sale? Yeah, no, it, it's a great question because there's a lot of misconceptions out in the market as it relates to rebates. So I guess the best way to think about it is, you know, if all things were equal, if all products, you know, to treat rheumatoid arthritis had the same efficacy rates, right, 
there has to be some kind of financial driver uh, to establish, you know, some value or some brand, you know, awareness around one product over another, right? So, you know, and, and that's the job of the PBM. So first they have a P&T committee that ultimately reviews drug efficacy and looks at a, a category by category to see which products they would deem as being preferred or non-preferred based upon how they're, you know, obviously performing for patients with those conditions. So that's kind of step one. Step two is that if all things were equal, if you had, you know, 95 or 100% efficacy rates across a drug category, then ultimately it becomes a cost game, right? What's the, the least expensive, you know, therapy for that condition? And in a lot of instances, you know, because the AWP pricing, there's only so many levers that can be played on that side, you're now generating an opportunity for a rebate. Um, so not a lot of people understand that. So there's not a rebate tied to, you know, every branded medication or every specialty medication. It's really designated for a small subset of drug categories or classes um, where there is, you know, some parity amongst all of the products in that category. So the best way to approach that as an employer, because the last thing you want is your employees saying, you know, I want this product because I know it's highly rebatable and it's going to support my employer plan. That gets really complex. Um, so the one thing I would always encourage people to think about is when you're, when you're negotiating your PBM contract, negotiate it across all branded medications. Um, negotiate a minimum guarantee across all branded medications. That way you kind of take out that, that guesswork on which products you should be aligned with as an employer to try to, in that way, it's very predictable. You can account for it. You know, there's a set per brand guarantee that you can, you know, point to within your contract that doesn't necessarily need any type of behavioral changes in order to access. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And rebates is a tough, a tough space as we just talked about. And one of the things that I would love for you to talk a little bit more about is a 100% pass-through model of rebates versus the alternative models and, and what the, what the differences are between those so that employers out there can have a, a basic idea of, of that structure and what that means to them. Yeah. So when I think of rebates, I actually think of 100% pass-through. There's almost two terms to that, right? So let's talk through the differences between those two. So one is 100% pass-through of rebates from the PBM, right? So in, in some instances, you know, whatever the PBM is generating, you know, you want to ensure that there's not somebody sitting in between the PBM and the employer taking any component of that, right? So that's one source of, of, you know, transparency is that if I'm an employer and, you know, I'm generating $100,000 in rebate value, you know, and that's what the PBM is receiving on behalf of my pharmacy benefit, I want to receive 100% of, of that, those dollars. The second component to it is, you know, I, I agree that, you know, whatever is being accessed via pharma, that is the, the second level of transparency, right? So, you know, making sure you have a contract that has some minimum guarantees um, that ultimately will generate 100% pass-through of what's being generated by pharma is the second component of transparency that I think is needed here. So I hope those two made sense because one is really tied to getting them access to all dollars that are coming from pharma. The second is making sure that once they're being received by the PBM, they're being passed down at 100% to the employer plan. The reality is not all plans or TPAs will allow for that, right? We definitely see, depending on group size, that 
there are limitations around that pass through. So, you know, certainly where relevant, that creates some interesting dialogue, right? And pressures on the space. The good news is we are absolutely seeing more transparency than ever before, regardless of the market that our clients are are leveraging and or placing their contracts. It's interesting to see how rapidly this is evolving, this conversation. Many are more open to using rebates with full disclosure as offsets to admin. Others, right, are open to 100% pass-through. At the end of the day, I'm sure you would agree, we need transparency and at many different levels within the system today because there's a lot happening behind the scenes. No, I I would agree with that. And you know, however they're used, as long as there's full visibility into what those dollars are, I think, you know, however it's structured makes a ton of sense. So if if a third party administrator, you know, is offsetting, you know, administrative fees to support the the medical program using rebate, however, however it's managed, as long as there's full visibility into where those dollars are coming from and how they're being allocated, I'm a big proponent for that. One of these things of or drivers of transparency, or one of the reasons I think we're seeing more transparency as a better way to phrase this, is the model of carving your pharmacy in versus having a pharmacy carved out. Can you help us understand the difference of those two, Nathan? And then maybe we can talk for a minute about the good and bad of both from your perspective. Yeah, no, definitely. So carved out, you know, essentially just means, you know, self-funding or managing your pharmacy benefit outside of your medical provider or carrier Carved in meaning that you have kind of one contractual relationship with one organization where you access both your medical and your pharmacy benefits. I'll I'll hit the pros and cons for each if that's okay. So on the carved inside, you know, pros certainly are as you have, you know, one source of truth when it comes to everything healthcare as an employer. It's very easy for people to understand their benefits when they have, you know, 1-800 number to call. Uh, So I think that's certainly you know, there's a value there. And, and now that all three of the big PBMs are tied directly to a carrier in one way, shape or form being Aetna, Cigna and United, um, those are clearly homes that, that people feel confident in placing their business with. The negative side to that is that, you know, there's a lack of transparency on how all of that is being managed, right? And in a lot of instances, you know, employers need to have that level of visibility into their own utilization and their own spend uh, and how that impacts their premium levels from those carriers. And you don't always have that level of transparency or any type of guarantee around those particular types of programs in a carved-in environment. The other con there, and I don't want to way too too heavily on the the con side here, but, you know, each employer is very different, you know, and I know we want to talk a little bit about COVID today as well, but, you know, as it relates to the level of risk and how a client's benefits are being structured, they want some level of flexibility and how that gets, you know, obviously constructed and deployed down to their employee population. So in a carved in environment, very structured, not as much flexibility on how the benefits would be administered as would in a carved out environment. So, Carved out, I'd say the cons being is that, you know, there's a lot of players in this space and and you have to have a really strong, you know, broker such as yourselves, you know, on the other end, supporting you and helping you uh, manage that process. Um, it, it can be confusing to your employees to have multiple ID cards in some instances. So there's a lot to be said for that. You know, you have two sources of truth, right? You have the medical side of the business plus the pharmacy side. So two 800 numbers to have to finagle. So there's certainly some cons to having, you know, a carved out benefit. 
carved in is that you, you have obviously a lot more flexibility around how your benefits being managed and how it's being established. Um, really good visibility into your costs, where the costs are coming from. And, you know, ultimately, if you choose to deploy some solutions to manage that, that cost better, obviously, it's easier to do that in a carved out environment uh, versus carved in. So a lot of advantages on both sides of the fence. And depending upon each employer's, you know, risk tolerance, you know, both are really good solutions to manage spend in a lot of instances. I would say another differentiator, depending on the platform, comes down to J-codes. Can you talk to us a little bit about J-codes and how those potentially get aligned in a carved-in or out environment alike? Yeah, so J-codes, for for those of you that aren't familiar with what a J-code is, it's essentially a procedure code um, for an injectable medication. So those are ultimately how they get billed on the medical side of the benefit. Um, so if you use that same specialty, you know, prescription example, you know, if you have, you know, a J code that's associated with a very high cost specialty medication, you know, the way that it would get priced on the medical side is very different from how it would be priced if it would carved away and actually build through your pharmacy benefit. So in a carved out environment, obviously you'd want to be able to move as many of those J codes from the medical plan where you don't have as much visibility into how the discounts are being managed to your pharmacy benefit, where you have obviously some concrete, you know, AWP discounts that it would be applied across those injectable medications. So we've seen, you know, obviously a number of employers look to carve out J codes from the medical plan and require that they get you know, driven through the pharmacy benefit where they can access, you know, really good discounts and rebates for those same injectable medications. Yeah, the interesting conundrum there, right, is who's controlling that. So we definitely see some limitations to J-code carve-out intentions in the marketplace that sadly can be quickly overlooked when evaluating AWP pricing and standard carve-in, carve-out terms. So I think it just raises a really important concept and topic to truly navigating and understanding the big picture, because that is a huge piece of RX spend, but it's a derivative of two different delivery right platforms. Awesome. Thank you for your insight there alike. This space is, we're starting to see is, to me, more confusing than hockey, which Vanessa, someday you're going to have to explain hockey to me. Uh, <laughs> Lifelong, three kiddos there. I can help you all day long. But you're right. This is a very, very dynamic space. There's a lot of rules of engagement. But at the end of the day, it comes back to, right, how do our clients and their employees play defense for the best possible outcomes? And it's it's a moving target in today's environment and lots to be thinking about. I always equate it to never leaving a rock unturned, right? It's taking a whole new level. It's a boulder, right, <laughs> with many layers underneath. <laughs> yeah, this, this space is something that you definitely have to have a laser focus on to be able to manage it properly and to be able to offer the richest benefit possible to get your employees the right access to care so that they can get access to these medications, as we talked about, that can ultimately be life-changing. But if you're not careful, it can run your cost up. And it can really, really hurt an employer-sponsored plan if they're not cautious, if they're not going about it the right way, and they're not, as you said, uncovering every stone and really trying to look at the good and the bad of every single aspect that can make up a pharmacy benefit contract. So Nathan, we really, truly appreciate your time today. And we touched on high level so many different strategies and so many different areas of a pharmacy benefit. There's so many other things, and we could probably have 10 other episodes 
just on the pharmacy space and trying to uncover all the different aspects and strategies. And we talked briefly about carving out specialty. That could be an episode all into itself and managing specialty spend and the fun that that can bring. But we hopefully are bringing some great insights to our listeners about this space and how to truly manage it. So thank you, Nathan, for joining us. No, I, I appreciate the, the, you know, the ability to sit down and talk about these subjects. They're obviously I'm a self-proclaimed pharmacy benefit nerd. So whenever you guys are <laughs> willing to sit down and talk about any of these topics, I, I'm, I'm willing to join and, and to, to further elaborate on them. This is what I love to do and I have a passion for it. So thanks for, for letting me join today. Much appreciated. We look forward to talking to you again soon. And thank you all for listening and tuning in to today's episode two of the Benefits Breakdown. More fun to come as we look to episode three. Take care, be healthy, and be well. Thank you for listening to the Benefits Breakdown. This episode, in combination with our previous episode titled The State of the Market for Employee Benefits, is eligible for one SHRM credit. If you haven't yet, please go back and listen to The State of the Market for Employee Benefits. The code for SHRM credit is 22-GQDWC. That's 22-G as in golf, Q as in Quebec, D as in Delta, W as in whiskey, and C as in Charlie. This code expires after December 31st of 2022. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to be sure to tune in to our next episode. 